Thank you, Byron, for making sure the R was uh, straight. I appreciate that. Making sure I look good. You know, always when I get to the 11 o'clock sermon and I, and I look out at everybody and I realize that everyone's looking back at me and they realize it's not Byron, I feel like their immediate thought is like, we're going to make it to lunch today. It's going to be good. Uh, the 9 a.m. made it to breakfast, so I think we're on, we're on the right track. And I feel privileged to be able to bring the word to everybody this morning, to be able to stand behind this pulpit. So I want to say thank you to Pastor Byron for giving me the opportunity to, to preach today. It's always exciting. And, you know, the last time that I was able to share the word with everyone, I preached out of the book of Philippians. It's about a year ago or so, and I preached over the topic of anxiety. You know, I feel like some of y'all are still anxious about that sermon that I, that I preached still a year a year later, but it was kind of funny because after uh, I finished that sermon, you know, a, a little time had passed, a couple of uh, months or so, and Pastor Brian came to me and said, you know, that sermon on anxiety is actually, you know, it's our like most downloaded podcast on our redemption sermons, you know, at, at the time and uh, alongside, I think, our, our Song of Solomon series. And so at first I was kind of excited. I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Like I'm number one on iTunes. <laughs> like I've, I've made the big leagues at Redemption Church. But then my immediate thought afterward was, well, hold on a second. That means that our top downloaded sermons are about anxiety and sex. So I don't know what that says about Redemption Church, but it kind of, I wasn't sure if that was still a good thing to be, you know, that number one spot anymore. But we're going to shake it up. We're going to preach about something a little bit different this morning. You know, over the next three weeks, as we move toward Good Friday and as we move toward Easter Sunday, we're going to begin looking at this good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Did you know that that's good news? Yeah. Right, that it's good news that to the life, the death, the resurrection, what Jesus accomplished for us throughout his earthly ministry, through his resurrection, through what he did on the cross. That's good news that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to start by looking at the life of Jesus. Now, if you're a member of Redemption Church, you know that the, our favorite way to preach through the Bible is called expository preaching, right? Where we preach verse by verse, book by book through the scriptures. You know, we've been going through the book of Mark since our first Sunday as a church, actually. And we just celebrated our five-year anniversary, right? Like we love expository preaching. But that's how we normally bring the word. We go verse by verse, book by book. But we're going to do it a little bit different as we go through this series. We're going to approach it, you know, what we would call topical preaching or approaching it topically. So rather than going verse by verse, you know, we're going to be looking at different texts, different stories throughout the scriptures as we piece and put together the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we talk about how this is good news for us as a church, you know, this has been a year of not so good news. Would y'all agree, you know, that, that, that it's been, you know, 2020 into 20, we thought 2020 was over, but it just continued into 2021. It's like the longest year we've ever experienced. It was a year of bad news. You know, we had COVID-19, a year that was full of death and disease, a year that was full of political unrest. But we have a story that we want to share that's good news, right? There's a story that's gone on for longer than just 12 months, but a story that's gone on for two millennia of the story of the life of Jesus, a story of good news, of hope. And that's what we want to share over the next three weeks as we move into Good Friday and into Easter Sunday. 
But we're going to look at it a little bit different this morning as we look at Jesus's life. You know, when we think of sermons or messages over Jesus's life, we really tend to think of, you know, a biography. Like we have a, a biographical look at the life of Jesus. You know, we start with, you know, his incarnation, with him being born and his entrance into the world. And we look at him growing up into adulthood, him starting his earthly ministry, the trials, the tribulations that he goes through, his miracles. We look at his crucifixion, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. You know, we go through this timeline of the life of Jesus. But rather than looking at it as a biography this morning, I really want to approach it through a theological lens, not a biographical one. And so what I mean by that is instead of looking at this timeline or this life stage of who Jesus was, I want to look at more of the, an overview of the reality of who Jesus is as a person. Who is Jesus? And so we're going to look at three things today. We're going to see the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was truly, fully, and completely God. And at the same time, we're going to see the humanity of Jesus, that he was truly, completely, and fully one of us, that he was human, that he took on human nature, that he was fully God, and at the same time, fully man. And we'll see how this union, this union between Christ's divinity and his humanity is necessary for us, for our salvation. And so theologically, when we, when we look at this truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man, you know, we call this uh, the hypostatic union. All right, y'all hear that and y'all like something about static, like my cell phone reception, like I don't know what, hypostatic union. So it's this idea that Jesus was fully God, fully man, and at the same time, one person, that there's no division in the person of Christ and who he is. Right? And this is sort of a mystery when we try to think about, when we try to comprehend this understanding of the person of Jesus. It's very similar to when we try to understand the Trinity, right? That we worship a God who is one, one God, but who exists in three persons as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. And Jesus exists as one person. There's one Jesus, but it's Jesus, the God man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And so there's a lot to cover here as we go through this message. Um, there's a lot of the Bible talks about who Jesus is, right? Like all the Bible talks about who Jesus is. And so there's going to be a lot of different areas that we're pulling from and that we're looking at. And there's going to be gaps. You know, we only have 30 minutes or so, 45, 60, 70 minutes this morning as we go through this message. And so there's going to be gaps. There's going to be things that are missing. But what I want you to know at the outset is the gaps are not in the truth of what we're discussing. The gaps are in my message. The gaps are in, you know, the preparation. The, gra- the gaps are not in the text. The gaps are not in the Bible. The gap is not in the reality of who Jesus is. The gap is just in the time that we have together this morning to discuss such a deep, such a dense topic. Right? So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, you know, but what about this? Well, but what, that, what about that is a great question. And it can be answered But this morning, we don't have time to look into everything, but we're going to take an overview this. Think of it as like a wide angle, a zoom out lens picture of the reality of who Jesus is. So those are the three things. The big idea this morning that we'll be looking at is the good news that Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and what that means for us for our salvation. So let's start with looking at the deity or the divinity of Jesus, this fact that Jesus is God, that he claimed to be God. And that he was, in fact, who he said he was. You know, and this is something really important for us because we all know skeptics in our life. There's probably skeptics here this morning when we talk about the divinity of Jesus. Is that really true? Is he really who he says he was? But I want to look at three reasons from the scriptures this morning that show that Jesus was, in fact, 
who he says that he was and who he says that he is, and that point to uh, the reality of that. So as we look at the New Testament and as we look at the divinity of Jesus, what I want us to understand is that this is not something that is just in a few controversial passages that are kind of sporadically in the New Testament. This isn't on just a page here and a page there. You know, some guy said something about it in some book in the Bible. But the truth is that rather on almost every single page of the New Testament, it's pointing to the divinity of Jesus in one way or the other. And so the three ways that I want to look at it this morning are three reasons from the scriptures to show that Jesus is in fact God are these three things. One, that in the Bible, Jesus is called God. Number two, that Jesus performs the actions or the acts of God. And number three, that he is presumed or assumed to be God all throughout the New Testament. And to me, that third one is actually something really interesting because I never really looked at the fact that the Bible, if you think about it, never really argues for the fact that Jesus is God. Have you ever thought about that or considered it? Like there's not like the book of arguments for Jesus's divinity, right? Just all the New Testament writers, all four of the gospels, they just assume that Jesus is who he says he was. And so I thought that was something really interesting that we'll talk about here in a moment. But the first point is this, that Jesus is in fact in the New Testament by himself and by others called God. Now there's a variety of names that are used for Jesus throughout the scriptures, you know, he is called the Son of God. He is called the Christ. He is called the Messiah. He is called the fullness of deity. He's called the Son of Man. He is called the Word of God. He is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is called the Holy One. He is called our Savior. And all of these titles, they carry a certain significance. But since we only have a short time together this morning, we're just going to focus on three of these names or titles that clearly establish that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is God incarnate, God with us, God in the flesh. And the three names are this, that he is called Lord, he is called the Son of God, and then lastly, and most just straightforward, he's just called God. <laughs> like they just say, okay, Jesus is God. That's actually in the Bible. I know some people may not realize that, but they just call Jesus God on multiple occasions in the scriptures. But the first thing that we want to look at is this name, Lord, that Jesus is called Lord. The Greek word for this in the New Testament is kurios. And this is the same name that the Old Testament uses to refer to God in the Old Testament, God the Father, to Yahweh. In the Old Testament, there was, there's this big word called tetragrammaton that just basically means the unspoken name of God, that in the Old Testament that you weren't to speak God's name. And so it was Yahweh. It was this name that was not supposed to be able to be, to be spoken. And when you translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which is what the Bible that our New Testament uh, writers and authors would have been reading, then they translated Yahweh kurios or Lord. So that, that was the Greek replacement for the Hebrew Yahweh. And in different places, it can mean different things, right? So on certain occasions, it might mean master. And this is a title that was also used for Jesus as well. So for example, when the disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? So it's the same word, kurios, but it's meant in this particular passage as master, teacher, one who has authority to speak and to teach. But there's other, other occasions where kurios is meant to replace Yahweh or God in the Old Testament, this unspoken name of God. So we know or we remember the story of Moses in the burning bush, right? So Moses, he goes to the top of the mountain and he's speaking with God on the, on the holy ground at the burning bush. And when Moses goes back to the people, he asks God, he says, all right, so I've been talking to a burning bush. Like, who am I supposed to say sent me when I go back down? Because if I just say the burning bush sent me, like, they're probably going to stone me. So 
What do I tell them? And so he says, tell them I am sent you. That I am is the one who sent you. And we find ourselves looking at Jesus in this where, where he tells Moses that he is, is Lord in the Old Testament. We find Jesus in the New Testament in the temple. This is in John chapter 5. He finds himself in dialogue with the religious teachers. And they're questioning Jesus about his identity. And so some people are calling him a Samaritan. Others are saying that he's, that he's demon-possessed. And at the end of the dialogue, this is what Jesus says of himself to the Pharisees. He says, very truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him. So Jesus is claiming here the most sacred title that someone could call themselves. He's literally taking the name, the unspoken name of God, the I am of the Old Testament, Lord. And he's saying, that's me. That before Abraham was, I am. And we know what's happening here, that the seriousness, the implications of what's going on, because we see the reaction of the Jewish leaders, that they take up stones to kill him. So if there was any misunderstanding on our part, what Jesus meant, we can just simply look at the reaction of the religious leaders to know what Jesus meant. Right? If you look at the Old Testament, blasphemy to make yourself equal with God was a charge that resulted in death. That was the penalty of blasphemy in the Old Testament. So when the Jews pick up stones to kill Jesus, we know what Jesus is saying. We know the claim, the assertion that Jesus is make, that Jesus is making. So it says not only here that Jesus is God, but that Jesus as Yahweh, and this is important, he's the head of the covenant between God and man. That's what it means when we look at Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is the name that God chooses to be known, to be in relationship, to be in covenant with his people. So not only is he saying that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh, but that he is head, he is over this covenant that has happened and occurred between God and man. And all throughout the New Testament, you know, there's reference after reference of Jesus ascribing this title, this title of Lord to himself by others. Um, you know, there's actually over a dozen occasions where there's interpretations of Old Testament texts in the New Testament, where if you read the Old Testament, the context is referring to God. And if you read the interpretation of it in the New Testament, it's referring directly to the person of Jesus, where they just replace Jesus with God of the Old Testament on over a dozen occasions. When you're one of the most prominent examples of this uh, replacement, you could say, in the New Testament would be in Matthew chapter 22. It also occurs in Mark chapter 12, I think 2024, 20, Mark chapter 12, right? We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, and we see Jesus. He's teaching in the temple, and he asked the Pharisees a question. He asked them this. He says, who is the son, the Christ? Or who is, who is the son, the Christ, um, the son of the Christ? I'm getting this totally mixed up here. Who is the Messiah, the son of David? There we go. He's saying, who's the Messiah, the son of David? Whose son is the Christ? And the answer would be David, that he is the son of David. The Christ is the son of, of David. And so he quotes this psalm, though. This is Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. And this is David. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this is where Jesus asked him. He says, how then could the Christ, the Messiah, be the son of David and at the same time also be David's Lord. Because we have to remember here that this title that Jesus is giving himself, he's calling himself Lord. He's calling himself, he is the son of David. So the question is, well, how can you be the same person, the son of David on the one hand, and at the same time Lord on the other hand? And that's where he quotes, this makes this reference to this verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so when he asks the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, this question, how can the Christ be the son of David and be David's Lord? And the word here, important to note, 
is Kyrios, the covenant Lord, Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's scandalous to the religious leaders because they know the implication that he's saying. The only way that he can be son of David and Lord at the same time is to be God himself. He has to be God himself. And so this is the response of the Pharisees. He asks them this question, and here's what they do. They do nothing. They don't answer him. They can't answer him. And then it goes on to say that after this, they actually didn't ask him any more questions. They're like, all right, we're done. <laughs> like there's, we just, there's no more questions here that, that we want to ask you. So the reality finally sets in for them that Jesus is who, that he, who he says he is, that he was who he says that he was, that he is Lord, that he is God of the covenant. So he's called Lord, but he's also called the Son of God. Now, it's not necessarily a unique name to be called the Son of God, right? Like as Christians, we would also consider ourselves, you know, sons of God or daughters of God. So there's nothing in that title in and of itself that is necessarily unique. But what is unique is the way that Jesus uses that title in reference to himself. And so if we go back to the fifth chapter of John, here again, we find Jesus and he's in a conversation with the religious leaders, with the religious teachers. And this is what it says. It says that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, as important, equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you look back at verse 18, it says this, that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not because he was breaking the Sabbath, but rather because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's a certain designation that we have as sons of God, as daughters of God, but Jesus uses this title in a very distinct way in reference to himself. Over and over again, he uses this title without apology. He, there's other ways that he says this as well, that he's the only begotten son, that he is the, the beloved son, we can see here in John, he, calls, he just calls himself God's own son. Think about the claims that he's making as well. That He says, whatever the Father does, that's what I do. Just as the Father gives life to the dead, Jesus gives life to the dead. And on whose accord does he do, does he do it? On his own. He does it on his own accord, that Jesus gives life on his own accord, to, according to his own will. He says that the Father doesn't, in fact, judge anyone, but rather the Son has been reserved all judgment. That we are to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And if you do not honor the Son, then you do not honor the Father. So you can see why speaking in this way would get Jesus murdered. You can see the, the blasphemy charge that the Pharisees, that the religious teachers are making toward him because he is using this term in a very unique sense, one that is making himself equal with God. And the reason was this, because he was. Because he, he was God. He was equal to God because he, in fact, is God. And there's numerous occasions all throughout the scriptures where he talks about the sonship uh, between himself and the Father. Another great example is when we read the, we read the high priestly prayer, prayer excuse me, in John 17. 
In John 17, we see Jesus praying for himself, praying for his disciples, praying that they would be one just as he and the Father are one. And he talks about a relationship of father and son that was before the foundations of the world. A relationship that Jesus and the Father shared before the world existed, an eternal father and sonship shared between them. So before the earth, before creation, the Father and the Son existed co-equal, co-eternal in eternity past. We see this clearly in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. And so we see Jesus is called Lord, Curios. We see that he is also called the Son of God, that both of these clearly show the deity, the divinity, the, the lordship, that Jesus is God. And then the last one that we will look at, and this is to the dismay of many uh, a Jehovah's Witnesses, John chapter 1, verse 1, where Jesus is clearly referred to as simply just God, right? John chapter 1, he just, they just straight up say, okay, he's God. And this is a very controversial text for a variety of reasons, and we don't have time to really look at all of them, but it's one amongst many that there are over a dozen texts in the New Testament that distinctly and directly identify Jesus as God. This is a different Greek word. This is not kurios, but this is the word theos. This is where we get our word theology, right? The study of God, that he is referred to as God. And so in John chapter 1, it says, it says this. This is John 1, uh, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, I read this, and it seems pretty straightforward, right? Especially as you continue on, verse 14, it's going to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You're right. This is an obvious reference to the person of Jesus, that Jesus took on flesh, entered the world, and walked uh, with us. And the challenge, the dispute, the dispute over this, this particular verse, the reason it's challenged, honestly, does not have a lot to do with the exegesis or the interpretation of the passage itself. But really, it has to do with a resistance against what this scripture actually teaches. That there's a resistance to the fact that this scripture actually teaches the fact that Jesus was who he says he was, that he was God. And we see that this word, this logos, Jesus, he existed, it says, before creation, in the beginning, in eternity past, with the Father. So before anything was created, Jesus was in relationship with the Father. And in fact, it goes on to say that everything was created through him. And so there's this concept in Christian theology, they call it the creator-creature distinction. And it's real simple, it just basically means this, that there is our creator, who's God, and then there's creation. And that's it. And before there was creation, there was just God. There was just the creator. And there is a perfect distinction, a gap between the creator and his creation. So when it says that Jesus existed in the beginning, that he existed before creation, that means that he existed at a point in time when there was nothing else but God. Which means that Jesus has to be God. Either Jesus was created or Jesus is God. And we clearly see in this passage that rather than Jesus being created... Everything was created through him as God. So we can see in this text, just like Jesus is called Lord, just like Jesus is called the Son of God, here Jesus is just straight up called God, that Jesus is God. We could look at John chapter 1, John chapter 20, Romans chapter 9, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Peter, Timothy, Hebrews. Now we could keep going to these other passages where Jesus is explicitly referred to as God. But we'll look at two other reasons as to why Jesus uh, is who he says he is, that he is, in fact, God. So we see that he is called God, number one. Number two, that he performs the actions of God, that he acts as 
God. All throughout the New Testament, we see the stories of Jesus casting out demons. We see stories of Jesus raising the dead, of him showing his power over creation, where Jesus forgives sins, that he has the authority to forgive sins, that he heals the sick. We see him teaching with an authority that astonishes the religious leaders of his day, even as a, as a young boy in the temple, that they're astounded by the amount of wisdom and knowledge that Jesus shares. And then we even see Jesus, if you go to the book of Revelation, that it's in fact Jesus who performs the final judgment over the earth. Right? So Jesus is called God, and we see now that he reserves or performs, excuse me, actions that are reserved strictly for God. We see certain miracles, right? Like Jesus walks on water and he calms the storm. And we might not see the significance of it in the text without looking a little deeper, but if you think about it, this is showing a power over creation itself. When Jesus turns water into wine, he's showing a, performing a distinct miracle, showing his power over creation. When we see him forgive sins and he is held in contempt by the religious leaders because the power to forgive sins, the authority for forgiveness of sins is reserved to God alone. And it causes controversy with the religious leaders. There's another story where Jesus heals a leper in Matthew chapter 8. And this one is really interesting because a leper in the New Testament time period, or in the Old Testament for that matter, was considered unclean, right? And in order to enter the temple, in order to offer sacrifice, you had to be clean. You had to go through the purity rituals of the time. You had to follow the purity laws. And as a leper, you could not do that. You were in a constant state of uncleanliness. And so Matthew chapter 8, a leper approaches Jesus and he, Jesus actually reaches his hand out toward the leper to heal him. And so this is controversial because to touch a leper would make you unclean in that time period. If you, that's why they separated the lepers into their own colonies and towns away from everyone else because they would make you unclean if you were around them and if you touched them. So Jesus actually proactively reaches out to touch the leper. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the leper is healed and becomes clean. So Jesus now has the power not only to heal his leprosy, but he has the power to remove the need for the purity laws, for the cleanliness laws. And just with a touch, he's able to make him clean and able to enter the temple. Right? This is an authority, a power only reserved for God himself. And we can continue with other examples. We also see how Jesus, he bears all the attributes of God, that he's perfect in his holiness, perfect in truth, in wisdom. He's almighty in his power. He's eternal. He's immutable, meaning he's unchanging. He's perfect in his glory. We could look at the New Testament and see how Jesus is consistently an object of faith. He's an object of worship. There's a lot of reasons that we see in the New Testament that show very clearly that Jesus is, in fact, who he said that he was and that he is who he says he is, that he is God. But the last thing that we'll look at briefly before we move on to our second point is this, that Something I've overlooked in the past and something that I feel maybe many of us don't understand is that all throughout the New Testament, and this is as I mentioned uh, earlier, the divinity of Jesus is simply presumed by everyone. It's just acknowledged. Like nobody argues for it. Nobody ever tries to make the case necessarily that Jesus is God. But all throughout the New Testament, all of the New Testament writers, they just assume that that's who he was. Right? It's never a case that has to be made. And it occurs so frequently that people just overlook this fact that on page after page after page, Jesus is just assumed to be God. And this wasn't even something controversial in the first century church. Like nobody tried to prove it or felt that they even needed to prove it. But it's mentioned over and over and over again. So we can think of something like, for example, when you read the books 
um, of Paul, the letters of Paul, right? Like Paul very often will send a letter, open a letter with a salutation, like a welcome or a greeting. And then he will close out his letters with a benediction, with a, you know, grace and peace out or something like that. But he opens with these salutations and he closes with his benedictions. And listen to this in Romans 1. And this is what I mean by this assumption about who Jesus is. It's not argued for. It's just simply implied and stated in the letter, almost in passing. Like Paul is just saying, hey, what's going on, guys? Jesus is God. Right? This is how he says it. This is verse 1 in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Who's he a servant to? To Christ. He's a servant to Jesus. And you have to remember who Paul is, right? A Jew amongst Jews, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the most religious man of his day. And hell, he's calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The, boss, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, implying another life, as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Kyrios. Through him we received grace and apostleship. This is through Jesus we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for Jesus' namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who were called to belong to Jesus, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about all the references there in that one passage where Paul's just saying, Hey guys, how it's going? It's Paul here. To Jesus being God, to Jesus being the one who calls them, Jesus being the one who they are, who is their master, Jesus being the one who they follow, Jesus being the one who called them to apostleship. All of this just in a greeting from Paul saying hello to the church in Rome. All through the passage, the deity of Jesus is just assumed. And it's the same way over and over and over throughout the New Testament. And you can also look at the way that Jesus refers to himself. You know, we talked about some of the names in the New Testament that Jesus uses for himself. But not just the names that he uses but the, or the actions that he performs. But what John Frame is one of my favorite theologians, what he likes to call the egocentrism of Jesus. Basically, like, Jesus is an egomaniac. Like, if you think about it, if you think about how often Jesus does everything about himself, Right? And he never apologizes for anything. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, of all the things, like, if we did half of the things that Jesus did, we would never stop apologizing. Like, we would be repenting all the time. Like, think about when Jesus just totally lets Lazarus die. And then he's like, ah, we'll make it in a couple of days. Right? Like, it's no big deal. And everybody's standing around, like, he's dead. Like, are you sure this is okay? Like, he never apologizes for anything that he, he does. Or maybe when he forgives the man's sins who's the paralytic. And he says, go, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's like, Legs are totally still broken, right? Like he, he does some things that we think are kind of strange if you really sit and think about it. On the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, that the people who are persecuted on his account will be blessed. He claims to be the I am of the Old Testament. He claims to be the only way to the Father. He claims to be the truth. He claims to be the life. He places loyalty to himself above even loyalty to family. He claims honor for himself that is due only to God. He never repents. He never seeks advice. He never asks anyone else for prayer, and he never apologizes, right? That's sort of strange behavior, right? But that's because Jesus knew who he was. He knew the truth of who he was, that he was, in fact, God. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, a famous apologist and author, many of you are probably familiar with him from the, the Chronicles of Narnia stories, 
but he also wrote a lot of nonfiction work as well. And his, probably his most famous nonfiction work is a book called Mere Christianity. And he says this in reference to whether or not Jesus is in fact who he said he was. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said and did the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's a powerful argument. Now, some people claim this. Some people claim that they just, you know, they think that they want to be, um, they want what they think to be more clear or more obvious references to Jesus being God. Or maybe they want more proofs that Jesus is, in fact, God. But here's the truth. The truth is the exact opposite. The truth is that people are not searching for any and every reason to accept that Jesus is the Christ. They're looking for any and every reason to reject the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. This has never changed. This has never changed since the first century church, that people are looking for reasons to not believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. It's been a stumbling block of unbelief that's existed ever since Jesus came to earth. So we've discussed the deity of Jesus, and now I want to take some time to look at the humanity of Jesus. You know, this is an important conversation that we need to have, because on the one hand, you know, we have the skeptic who says, you know, I don't know if Jesus really is God, if Jesus is who he says he was. You know, as a matter of fact, I don't know if Jesus really existed at all, right? We have that friend, we have that family member. So we have that challenge about the divinity, the deity of Christ. Is he who he he says he is? Is he who he says that he was? But on the other hand, we also have this struggle of the humanity of Jesus, that we aren't sure if Jesus really was fully human? Like, did he really accomplish all of the things that he accomplished as just a man? Was he able to be sinless and resist temptation, perform miracles, and do everything that he did just simply in his human nature? You know, and I've talked to some people over the past couple of weeks about this conversation just to kind of get an idea of, you know, where people kind of land in this conversation. And there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means for Jesus to be God. And I think even more of what it means for Jesus to truly be human. You know, the humanity of Jesus, this really isn't something that was contested in the first century church, you know, any more than his deity was. You know, when the scriptures were written, the humanity and divinity of Jesus were something very clearly established, but it did not take long for controversies and heresies to arise about whether Jesus actually was who he said. You know, on the one hand, we had heresies like Arianism. They said that Jesus was not actually fully God. Then on the other side, you would have heresies like docetism, which says that Jesus was not actually fully man, that he was God, but he wasn't really truly human. Who, who here has seen the Avengers? 
right? We know the scene where Thanos snaps his, his fingers, right? And everybody disintegrates. Like that's what they thought happened to Jesus. Like when he ascended to heaven, they thought that his body just like immaterialized and he just, he just vanished because his body was never real in the first place. Like that's literally what they, they taught, that he dissolved, right? So there was heresies on both sides of this question. Now for us, I don't think that that's our problem, right? Like they, they cleared this up in the fifth century, the Council of Chalcedon, they, they took care of, you know, the understanding that Jesus was truly God and truly man. Like in the introduction where I said, you know, this hypostatic union. We can all say it together. Hypostatic. Hypostatic union. All right. I, I taught everybody something today. But it just means this, that Jesus has two natures. He is both God and man. And at the same time, he is one person or being, that there's no division within Jesus. But the, the problem that we deal with is not whether or not Jesus was God or whether or not Jesus was, in fact, human. I think we, as Christians, we believe these things, but our problem is that we get hung up on whether or not Jesus was able to accomplish the things that he did as a human. We think that he always depended, always relied upon, always used his divine authority, his divine powers, his divinity to carry him through the situations that he experienced in life. But the fact is that that's just not true. That Jesus relied on his human nature through the power of the spirit, the power of the word, and through prayer to make it through his life, through his trials and his tribulations and his suffering. Because Jesus was just like you and me. He grew up from conception to an infant to an adolescent to an adult as a man. He ate, he drank, he experienced hunger and thirst. He got tired, he slept, sometimes on a boat during the middle of a storm. Nothing weird about that at all. He experienced joy, sadness, grief, righteous anger. He grew up in wisdom. He grew in stature and strength. He suffered pain. And eventually he was murdered and he died. He was a human just like you and me. But I don't believe that we truly reflect on this reality often enough and what its implications are for, for you and I. The fact that Jesus had a consciousness. He had a will. My son asked me the other day, he said, Dad, can you talk to yourself in your head? I said, yeah, I, I, I can. I said, I wonder what you're talking to yourself about in your head sometimes. But like Jesus had a consciousness. Like if you think about that, like these are sort of odd things that we don't consider often. He had a will. He had a soul. And the truth was that he persevered through all of the things in his life by reliance upon God the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, through the same things that we have access to today, the same resources that he used, we have available to us. Amen. And if we understand this, it will help us that there's good news to know that Jesus did not make it through this life by relying upon his divinity, but rather it was in his humanity and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. So there's three things that we'll look at here about the humanity of, of Christ. We will look at the, he was empowered by the same spirit, the same word. And because of this, he was able to resist temptation. So briefly, let's look at the same spirit. So Jesus had the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have in us as Christians on this side of Pentecost. So if you look back in the book of Isaiah, there are a lot of prophecies about the person of Jesus, who this person was going to be, what the Messiah, the Christ was going to look at. And one of the prophecies was this. It was in Isaiah 11, verses one through three. It says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is meaning from the lineage, the line of David. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
So the Messiah was going to be this person who comes empowered by the Holy Spirit, who filled with the Holy Spirit. We see after Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove, it does what afterward? It sends him out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. But he is filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, there's a sermon that Peter preaches to the Gentiles. And in that sermon, he says that all of the good works, the healings that Jesus did, they, they were accomplished through the power that Jesus received because God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus was fully God, but it was the man Jesus anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit who lived in obedience to the will of the Father. That Jesus didn't rely on his divine attributes and he chose instead to rely on the Spirit living just like one of us. And when we see this and when we grasp this, we can see that our, our own ability to walk in obedience to the Lord, to live a life of faithfulness, that it's, it's available to us through the same spirit that was in Jesus. We really need to think about that for a moment. Think about the way that Jesus lived his life. Think about the fruit of the spirit, right? I don't know how often we reflect on the fact that Jesus perfectly exemplified all the qualities and characteristics that we read in the fruit of the spirit, that those are all perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus, but they were still fruits of the spirit, that they were still fruits of the Spirit and that we have the same Spirit of God living in us, empowering and enabling us to live out a life the way that Jesus lived his life. Paul even writes in the book of Romans that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in fact the same Spirit that is living within us. So Jesus relied on the same Spirit and he also relied on the same Word. We read the story in Luke chapter 2. This is when Jesus gets uh, left behind in the temple, right? He's in the temple for three days and Mary and Joseph, they're looking for him for three days and they come back and they find him in the temple dialoguing in Jerusalem with the, with the teachers and the, the religious leaders. And he's having these conversations with the teachers of the law and they're amazed at the questions that he's asking and the answers that he is able to give. And it says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 40 and 52, that and the child grew, and he became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So again, we see Jesus growing up, that he grew in wisdom, that he grew in stature. He was filled with wisdom, and favor, the favor of God was upon him. And, you know, we don't know a lot of Jesus' life before his ministry. We know that this is around the age 12, that he's in the temple. But between that and the age 30, we just know that Jesus lived a normal life before his ministry. And throughout that time, before Jesus is baptized and begins his ministry, that he is in the temple, that he's reading his Bible, that he's going to church, that he's in a small group with his friends, that he's in a study group, that he's, he's learning and he's growing and he's reading his Bible and his scripture and he's growing and understanding and he's asking questions of the religious teachers. And he's learning and he's understanding that he needs to rely on the same word of God that we have. He learned to rely and to take in and to write the word of God on his heart in the same way that we do. Now, of course, Jesus being who he is, being God, he knew the word of God. He knew it perfectly. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the divine logos in the flesh. He is the word of God embodied, incarnate with us. But he didn't rely on his divine nature when it came to the scriptures. But rather he studied and he read and he learned and he grew and wisdom and how to depend and lean upon God for understanding. He leaned on the power of the Spirit to illuminate the Word for him so that he could attain knowledge, so that he could grow, so that he could develop, and so that he could use the Scriptures in his life to live a life of obedience to the Lord. 
That brings us to number three under the humanity of Jesus, that he resisted temptation. So Hebrews 4.15 says this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So what we just talked about, his reliance on the spirit, his reliance on the word of God, the power of those things, it's very important as we look at Jesus' life of obedience that he lived. Think about this for just a moment. Jesus never sinned, ever. Like he, he never, ever sinned. And this is, I think this is difficult for us to grasp because for us, like, like you stay up too late and your alarm goes off in the morning, like you have half an eye open and you're sinning already, like trying to find the alarm to turn it off, right? But Jesus never, he never sinned. And, and we think, how could that be possible? And, and if it is possible that he never sinned, well, what does that mean for us? And this is where we get into this question of, well, you know, Jesus didn't sin because he was God. You know, and I'm not God, so I mean, I guess I have to sin, you know. But that's not the truth. Well, it is the truth in a sense, and I'll explain what I mean. So there is truth to the fact that God, Jesus as God, as divine, could not sin. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but it is important to explain because this is a question that people would ask or people would use this as an excuse for that matter. But we call this the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. He was impeccable, meaning that he could not sin because he was God. He was perfect in holiness. So there's not even an option for God being perfectly holy to be able to sin. And so that's true. It was, in fact, the case that Jesus, as God, could not sin. But, and this is something that, again, we need to be able to to grasp here, is that in Jesus' humanity, he was empowered by the Spirit in the Word to not sin, to resist temptation. That it was not his divinity that resisted temptation, but his humanity that resisted temptation. And there's a really great book. Uh, it's by uh, a guy named Bruce Ware. And he has a, the book's called The Man, Christ Jesus. And I used that book a lot for this particular section. He has some really great, really helpful insights into what it means for Jesus to be a man. But he gives this illustration about his impeccability, about his how he never sinned that I think is really good. And so this is his, his picture. He says, imagine that you have a world-class swimmer and they go on these five to 10 mile swims. And every now and again, they'll go on longer swims, right? Let's say they're prepping for this, uh, this world record breaking swim that they want to accomplish. And the five to 10 mile swims are okay. But when they get into the 30 and the 40 mile swims, they start to, you know, they cramp, they start to get fatigued. Their muscles are, are building up with lactic acid and they're starting to, maybe they're having trouble continuing on the swim, but he wants to break this world record and he knows um, that it's dangerous. And so what he does is he gets a boat to follow him. And if you've ever actually seen this, um, I've actually seen some videos of people doing some of these long swims and they'll have a small boat that kind of follows alongside them as they swim. And so the boat is there in the event that anything should go wrong, right? The boat's there. So if you, you do start to drown or you do start to get fatigued, that the boat is there to carry you. So on the day that the swimmer, um, you know, attempts this swim, he completes it. He completes his world record swim. He makes it from one side to the other of wherever he was going. And the boat was there the whole time. But the boat is not needed. So the question that comes up, the two questions of this is, one, is the boat, uh, or excuse me, the question is, could the swimmer have drowned? And the answer is no. Well, no, he couldn't have drowned because the boat was there to protect him in the event that anything goes wrong to bring him into the boat. But the second question is this, is the boat the reason that the swimmer didn't drown? Well, the answer is no. He didn't drown because of his preparation, because of his determination, because of his perseverance, because of his practice. He didn't drown, not drown because the boat was there 
but instead he didn't drown because he prepared and the boat was just happened to be there, right? We can think of Jesus' way that he lived his life in a very similar way. His life of obedience was not because he was divine, though in fact he was, and though he could not have sinned, but he never had to lean on that. He never had to depend on that. Instead, he leaned on the power of the Spirit, and he leaned on the power of the Word, and he leaned on the power of prayer to carry his humanity through a sinless life. And so for us, all of that is available. All of that is available to us. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. When he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, how does he defeat the devil? Through the power of the word, through his understanding of the scriptures. When the devil tries to deceive him, he knows the true meaning and understanding of the scriptures. When he prays to the Father when he's about to go to his crucifixion and he says, Lord, if there's any other way that this could be done, let it be so. But if not, then let your will be done. Right? He's in prayer. He's battling his, his fears and his anxieties and his worries through the power of prayer by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand this, that we have these same resources that we too can resist temptation, that we too can live a life of obedience. We also can live a life of faith if, and this is an important if, if we rely on the same resources that Jesus relied on. So that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we in our temptation, in our weakness, in our suffering, in our trials, in our tribulations, are we relying on the same resources that Jesus himself used to rely on to carry himself through those moments? We have to ask ourselves that question because if we do then we will be able to live a life like Jesus lived not something in our own strength but something empowered by the spirit accomplished through an understanding of God's word and accomplished through persistent prayer so the last thing that we'll look at is this we've looked at the the divinity of Jesus we've looked at the humanity of Jesus that Jesus is in fact both fully God that he is at the same time both fully man and the importance of both of those things and what they mean for us but there's also the necessity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was the God, man, incarnate, and what that truly means for us and our salvation. And this is difficult. Like I know as we talk about this, some of these concepts are difficult to understand. Some of them may be new, even for myself, you know, this idea that the New Testament just assumes Jesus is divinity. Like that was a new understanding even for me as I'm reading through this. And so I know we don't think about this often. You know, Herman Babink, he's one of my favorite theologians. He's long dead. All the best ones. They've been dead for a long time. No. Uh, but his name's Herman Bavink. He wrote a book called, he wrote a, a, he wrote a lot of books. He wrote a, a series called Reformed Dogmatics. It's a big, like 3,000-page vo- uh, um, volume. But he says this, and this is in regard to the mystery of the union of Christ's humanity and divinity. And he says this, how, utter, how utterly the mystery of the union of the divine and the human nature exceeds all of our speaking and thinking of it. All comparison begins to break down, for it is without equal. But it is, accordingly, the mystery of godliness, which angels desire to look into and the church worshipfully adores. Right? There's something that is just that draws adoration and worship out of the Christians when we try to wrap our minds around the person and the work of who Jesus is. And as we get into this necessity of Jesus, why it the, the relationship that this has with us when it comes to our salvation, we'll see why we worship, why we adore this truth about who Jesus is as the God who became man. 
So that's our last point, the necessity of Jesus. So we see he's fully man. We see that he's fully God. But the question that I ask as I'm looking at this is, well, why did that have to be the case? Like, why did Jesus have to be fully God, fully man? Why did he? Well, we know why he had to be fully God, because he is fully God. But we had to ask, why did he have to become fully human? Like, why couldn't he have just said, you know, your sins are forgiven? Right? He's God. Couldn't he not have done that? But the truth is that we needed a mediator. We needed a redeemer. We needed someone to come in place of Adam, who, was, who committed the first sin and brought sin and death and destruction and disobedience into the world. We needed someone, a new representative, a new head of humanity to represent us that was a man, just like Adam was a man, a sacrifice, just like the one who was disobedient in the beginning. So we'll look at three things here and we will close out. Number one is that it's a necessity for Jesus to be our mediator, for him to be our example, and for him to be our redeemer, and that all of these things require the Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. So we'll work through these, work these pretty quick. So 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. And this is interesting here. That he says this, that he specifically refers to Jesus as the man Christ Jesus. He doesn't just say Christ Jesus or Jesus or our Lord Christ Jesus. He specifically says the man Christ Jesus. And like I said, this is important because in order for Jesus to truly be a mediator between God and ourselves, Jesus had to enter into this world and become just like us. Everything that Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled everything that he had to accomplish was primarily done in his life as a man, a spirit-empowered man. And that's the reality that we need to understand is that he experienced every day as a human being, that he experienced every day primarily as a man. And there are, of course, other verses that we, we can look at that also show the other truth here, that Jesus also had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to be effective, for him to truly defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. He had to be God as well, and that is absolutely true. But he also had to be a man. He had to be completely human just like us because he's dying in our place. He's dying for our sins and he's having to die a death that we deserved. And so he has to be fully human to be in our place, to die for our sins, to die at all. He has to be just like one of us. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is only one person who has ever been or ever will be able to fulfill this role. So he's sort of echoing Jesus. Like when Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, Paul is saying there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the God-man Christ Jesus, that there was no one else who could have accomplished what Jesus accomplished. There was no one else who can reconcile us to God. If you read in Hebrews, this is in chapter 2, it says this, that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that is us, humankind, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So he's writing that because it was humans who sinned, it was Adam who sinned, we needed a priest, a mediator, That's what, a priest is a mediator between God and man who was just like 
us, someone who was flesh and blood, who could make a flesh and blood sacrifice. And that was only effective because Jesus was like you and like myself in every way with the exception of sin. So we see that he is the mediator. We also see that he is our example. It says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's necessary for Jesus to be God and man, to be our mediator, and it's also necessary for him to serve as our example. You have to understand Jesus left behind everything divine in his nature when he became human. And I need to be careful how I say that. He didn't leave it behind like he didn't, like he didn't go anywhere, like he didn't like leave it behind in heaven. It was still there all the time. He never ceased or stopped being God, but rather his, he humbled himself to not rely or become dependent upon that divine nature. And instead, he humbled himself and relied on the spirit and relied on the word. Remember, he, he has divine knowledge because he's God, right? But Jesus also didn't know the time of his return because he had limited himself. He had humbled himself. Jesus could have came in power, but he doesn't. He comes in weakness. You know, as we're getting closer to Good Friday, we're going to hear the story about how Jesus, and during his arrest, Peter, he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus, he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. The guy's like, thank you so much. I needed my ear. And he puts it back on his head. And then he turns and he says this to Peter. And this is interesting. He says, don't you know that I could call upon my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to defend me? But how then will the scripture be fulfilled? Right? Like Jesus was powerful. He was all powerful. He was almighty God. But he didn't rely on his power when he was on earth, even though he could have. That's so he's telling Peter. He's like, look, I'm all powerful. Like I can handle this. I don't need you to chop this guy's ear off. It's a horrible shot, by the way. But if I do that, how is scripture going to be fulfilled? If he relies on his divinity to overcome sin and temptation, how is the scripture going to be fulfilled? He had to be like us in every way. He had to humble himself. And that humility serves as an example to us that we should also carry ourselves in humility and the service to one another. And something important to recognize here is Jesus' service is never removed from what he did on the cross. His work as a priest is never removed from his work as a servant, as an example. It's his sacrifice that we're actually told to emulate in the first place. It says that he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so you can't look at Jesus and just say, oh, he's a great man. Oh, Jesus is a great example. Oh, Jesus did a lot of good things. Oh, Jesus was a really great guy. Oh, that was really cool of him to put that ear back on that guy's head. Great job, Jesus. No, Jesus was the Christ, and his, exa his example to us is to emulate his humility on the cross. You cannot divorce his accomplishment on the cross from the example that he's setting for us. The two concepts are never detached from one another in the scriptures. When we're told to lay down our lives for one another, it's because Jesus did what? He laid down his life for his friends, right? We are to love one another because he first loved us by laying down his life for us. So we cannot just look at Jesus as a good person or as an example without at the same time recognizing what that example is. So the last thing that we'll look at and we'll close is that Jesus is also our redeemer. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we see this, that for us, as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So just like I said a minute ago, in order for Jesus to truly redeem his people, he had to, in a sense, he had to undo the mess that Adam had made. Because of Adam's disobedience, because of Adam's sin, 
death, disease spread to all of the human race that came after Adam. So if you keep reading in, in Romans 5, that's what Paul is saying when he says that you know, one man's trespass, one man's sin, one man's disobedience, it's Adam's sin and disobedience and Adam's failure, who is the representative, the head of all of the human race, his failure led to the death and the condemnation for everyone else. And so now Jesus comes, and Jesus comes as the second Adam, as the better Adam, who is actually going to fulfill the plan that Jesus has for him. And he becomes the new representative. He becomes the new head of the human race for all of those who were in Christ Jesus, in the new Adam. And he undoes all the bondage, all of the death that was brought into the world through Adam. But it was necessary for Jesus to become a man to bring restoration to what the man, Adam, had destroyed. It was a man that brought death into the world, and it's going to be a man that brings resurrection from the dead. That sin reigned because of Adam, but grace reigns because of the man, Christ Jesus. And so as we close, look, I know that this message is, you know, it can be kind of difficult. It can be kind of a heady message. Um, Thinking about you know, it's hypostatic union and Jesus being two natures, fully God, fully man, similar to the Trinity. Or, you know, we think about there's other difficult concepts in the Bible, right? How can God be totally sovereign? And at the same time, humans, we're responsible for our actions, right? Just because something is difficult, however, does not mean that it's not beneficial. And so the fact is this, that as difficult as some of these truths may be to understand and to wrestle with and to grapple with, the reality is that these truths are the power of salvation in your life. The fact is that Jesus took on flesh and blood for a purpose, for a specific purpose. Jesus says that he came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. Like Jesus didn't just come into the world to go on vacation, (laughs) especially in 2020. Like what a horrible year to pick. If you're coming here for vacation, like let's wait till, I don't know, 2023, I don't know. But Jesus didn't come here for that reason. He came with a purpose. He came on a mission. And it was a mission that he could not accomplish without being fully God, a mission that he could not accomplish without being fully human. If he's not fully God, then he can never truly say it is finished because he will be forever repaying that debt that was owed from Adam. But if he's not fully human, he can never bear and carry our sin and our shame on the cross as the representative of Adam. So he has to be fully God and he has to be fully man so that he can say it is finished and death, sin, hell, and the grave are defeated. John Frame says it this way, that since Jesus is perfect God, redemption is certain and permanent. And since he is the perfect man, he is able to perform as God's image, his father's perfect likeness as Lord over all. So take this good news with you as we think of a year full of bad news, a year where we don't want to turn on the TV, we don't want to turn on the news, we don't want to look at social media, a year full of just despair and destruction and unrest, that we have a story of good news, that we have a story where death is defeated, where race is reconciled, where we will all be before the throne of God, worship from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, worshiping God, worshiping Christ who is interceding for us right now at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.